0: Amen. Woo. They are so good, aren't they? That's enough. They'll get a swell head on us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that there's nobody like Jesus. Lord, you are the only one that we can turn to to be saved. Your word says there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So we thank you, Jesus, that you came, and as we start this Advent season, let our minds and our hearts be turned toward not only the cradle, but the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in our lives. We give you praise and glory this day and forever. Amen. In October, 12 of us from Faith Fellowship went to the country of Greece. We visited many sites where the Apostle Paul ministered on his missionary journeys in that country. And one of the most moving places for me was the ancient city of Corinth. These feet walked on the same streets where the Apostle Paul walked. These eyes saw some of the same structures that the apostle Paul saw 2,000 years ago quite amazing quite amazing Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament and two of these books were letters to the church that he founded in Corinth Greece they are first and second anybody know very good This morning, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote to those believers in this church that he founded in Corinth. It's a long passage. Bear with me. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The people, the Word of God, anybody know? Anybody from the Methodist background? We used to say, the word of God, for the people of God, thanks be to God. Did you know that God prefers losers? What? Now, some of you were half asleep when you saw me walk out. He "It's not Pastor Damon, we can sleep through this guy. But that had to wake you up. It's true, God prefers losers. Could anyone tell me the coach of the winners of Super Bowl number one? What's that? That's right, Vince Lombardi. What was the team? Who was the team that he coached? I thought we had some football fans in here. (laughs) Green Bay Packers. Okay, here, here it gets harder. The year that Super Bowl one took place. This is going to date some of you. 1967. Wow. Super Bowl next year be the 52nd Super Bowl. Coach Lombardi had this quote. He said, show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. (laughs) Does anybody really want to be a loser? You know, we all want to be on the winning team, don't we? That's why we're not Pittsburgh Pirate fans. Or Cincinnati Bengals fans, come on. Now if you're a fan of one of those teams, I want you to know that after the service there are gonna be prayer teams down front, here. And they will pray for you. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, and just this last week I saw he he leaped over Jeff Bezos. He's now or Bezos. He's now the richest man in the world. See, Jeff Bezos had a divorce and had to give his wife 35 billion (laughs) dollars. So that dropped him in the rankings. Bill Gates said this: "Success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can't lose." When I said God prefers losers, I mean he prefers people who know their weaknesses and their flaws. They admit their mistakes and their sins, and then they cry out to God for help. You see, God specializes in taking losers and nobodies and displaying his power through them. The Bible is full of people like that. Noah had too much wine and he got drunk. He was a drunkard. Abraham lied about being married to his wife. Jacob was a cheater. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson had some very serious problems with lust and anger. Eli failed as an absentee father to his two sons. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Jonah ran away from what God wanted him to do. And of course, Peter denied Christ three times. God has always preferred people who lose the pretense and false assessment of themselves. And they acknowledge their weaknesses, they acknowledge their flaws. They acknowledge they're not perfect people. They admit their mistakes. They admit their sins. And then they don't just wallow in that. They cry out to God for help. God prefers losers. God prefers nobodies. If God only chose people who seem to have no character flaws or no weaknesses, the credit for the victories in their life would inevitably go to them and not to him. By choosing and loving losers, sinful and flawed people, God alone gets all the glory and he gets all the praise when those people accomplish good things by his power. That's what Paul says to the Christians in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is one of the most important verses for understanding who we are and how God works through us. Here it is again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In this verse, there are two thoughts we're going to consider this morning. The first is this. Give me another screen. Up here. There. <laughs> it's highlighted. Okay? We have this. What is it? Treasure. Roll me another one. Down here. Not their fault, it's my fault. So, what is this treasure? On this Thanksgiving weekend, I had a lot to give thanks for. Wonderful family, children, great meal. But the greatest thing is I gave thanks to God for this treasure of salvation and eternal life that I have. My treasure's not a large stock portfolio filled with Apple and Amazon stocks. It's not a 10,000 square foot house set on some vast acreage. It's not a garage full of exotic cars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Bentleys. No, the treasure that I possess this morning is the gift of salvation and eternal life. And the amazing thing is, that is not just for me. That each of us in this place can have this treasure because of Jesus, his birth, his sinless life, his death, burial, and resurrection. Because of Jesus. The Bible lets me know that there are seven components included in this treasure that I have today. And if you're a born-again believer, you have the same seven. Number one, I am forgiven. God has removed my sin debt, and my sinless? No, but He's removed that sin debt against me. I am justified. These are all theological terms, way above our comprehension sometimes. But I'm forgiven. I'm justified. God has changed my eternal destiny. At one time in my life, I was headed for separation from God when I died, what we call hell. But now I'm on my way to heaven. I am regenerated. God has transformed my heart, a heart of sin. He's transformed me. I am reconciled. Now I have friendship with God. He's my heavenly Father. He's my friend. I am adopted. God has changed my family. I have a wonderful earthly family, but I belong to the family of God, the forever family of God. I am redeemed. God has set me free. And finally, seven, I am sanctified. God has changed my behavior. I really wouldn't want you to know the old David. The David of many years ago. God has changed my behavior. Again, I'm not sinless. I sin. I make mistakes. I'm a flawed human being. Sometimes the greatest treasures come in ordinary pots or jars of clay. In 1947, shepherds who were watching over their sheep found some clay jars containing some ancient scrolls in a cave in Israel. I remember right, I think one of them was just tossing rocks in this cave and heard a clunk different than the normal clunk and they went in to examine what was going on. And they were simple shepherds, they could not read the scrolls. They had no idea what they had discovered. Later on more people found other scrolls in that cave and other caves that were in the region. Those original shepherds sold three of the scrolls and portions of the scrolls for approximately $28. They were not aware of the treasure they had found in jars of clay. Only later was it determined that they had stumbled upon the greatest collection of biblical manuscripts found in the 20th century, They were the Dead Sea Scrolls, scrolls that have since that time have been passed on and sold for millions of dollars. They did not realize the treasure they had. You see, you never know what you might find in a clay pot, in a jar of clay. Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Another screen. The word used here for jars of clay refers to ordinary clay pottery, and in the days of the first-century Corinthians, these clay pots were used by the people in that city to store their food, just like would be ancient Tupperware. Anybody use the Tupperware because of the Thanksgiving leftovers? Or something similar to Tupperware. And some of the clay pots were used to store oil to light their, their lamps. Paul is saying to them, fellow Christians, we're not like some priceless vase from Demon Marcus, we are more like cheap brown pots that can be bought at Walmart. Here are two things we know about those clay pots in Paul's day. They were fragile. They were easily broken. And I think that sounds a little bit like you and me today in the 21st century. You know we all have our limits whether we like to admit it or not and our limits seem to be stretched at this time of year. We can run here, we can go there, run and go and run and go. But sooner or later, life catches up with us. And we can get broken like everyone else. You know, we like to think that we can handle anything that that life throws at us. But in fact, we can break under the pressures and stresses of life. We like to think we can stand up to everything, that nothing can touch us, nothing can harm us, nothing can break us. But friends, we're wrong. We're fragile. We're nothing but a bunch of ordinary clay pots, jars of clay. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God says, it says that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. Now what happens to our bodies when we die? Don't like it's not a pleasant thought. I get that. But we begin to decompose. Especially prior to modern day burial methods, our bodies begin to decompose. Go back to the earth. So this is our true identity. We're all just clumps of dirt. Not Joe dirt, but Clumps of dirt. Some of us were dressed up a little better this morning. Some of us are a bit stronger this morning. Some of us are going to last longer. But in the end, we all go back to earth. This is where God has chosen to put the treasure of his gospel message of salvation in jars of clay in fragile people who are, in essence, here today and gone tomorrow. God has always purposed to bless the world by putting the gospel in jars of clay. In people that don't seem very impressive by worldly standards, people that some would refer to as no bodies. Now, if we were God, and you're not, then I'm not. Some people think they are, don't they? You and I probably would have chosen to do it some other way. But you see, God had a special purpose in mind, as he always has a purpose in mind. The Apostle Paul says that unbelievers are spiritually blinded by Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of who? So that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says unbelievers... Have a definite problem. Their spiritual minds are blinded and they're kept from seeing the truth and the light of the gospel message. So, how do those who don't believe, they are unbelievers, they've yet to come to Christ? How do they obtain this treasure of salvation that he talks about? Well, fortunately, God has taken care of that problem for anyone who's willing to receive God's cure. God's cure. In this verse that we're going to read, Paul puts the credit right where it belongs. For God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul says God made his light shine in our hearts. In other words, God alone did it. He took an unbeliever named David Blackburn And he shined the light of his gospel message into my spiritually blind heart. God did it. If you are saved today, if you are born again, according to John 3, 3, which Jesus said you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you are on your way to heaven, it may be 50 years from now, it may be next week. If all of that is true about you, it's not because of anything you said, It's not because of anything you did. It's not because you deserved it. It's not because you're in church this morning. You see, our lost sinful condition was so hopeless that apart from God's grace, which we preach in this place over and over and over, God's grace. Apart from God's grace, I had no hope at all. And if you're a believer, apart from God's grace, you had no hope at all. We would never have discovered the truth about Jesus on our own without God shining his light. Maybe it was just a small pinprick of a light that started. But he shined his light into your spiritually blinded heart. And as the song says, written by a very corrupt slave trader, John Newton, many years ago. He said, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He was spiritually blind, and he sees now with spiritual eyes. The second important statement that Paul made in 2 Corinthians 4-7 is this. This all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I've touched on that already. But God's decision to use clay pots, jars of clay, demonstrates the true source of spiritual power. The Greek word for power in this verse is dunamis. We get the English word. Anybody want to take a guess? Dynamite, very good. Dynamite. Who was that character? I was thinking about it all week. That, that. JJ. Do one for us, Tom. No, okay. He was a lot thinner than you, Tom. Uh, that's, it's a reality. He's thinner than me. Now, dynamas is a fitting word because in our world, power is often very negative. In the hands of sinful people, power can be very dangerous. Power can divide people. Power can damage families. Power can take advantage of the poor and the less fortunate. Power in the wrong hands can kill, as we witness it almost every week by the actions of terrorists around the world. Now, God's power is different. Thank you, Jesus. God's power unites people. God's power tears down walls. God's power restores marriages. God's power rebuilds families. God's power lifts up the poor and needy. God's power heals broken hearts. God's power forgives all sins. God's power imparts hope in the darkest hour of your life. And God's power gives light to those of us who will travel in the valley of death someday. You see, God arranges things in our life, the lives of other people, so that the whole world will know that this sort of power, life-changing power, comes from God and not from us. Consider a story in the Old Testament, and every time I read it, I just chuckle. It's in Judges chapter 7 about a man named Gideon. The Midianites, the arch enemies of the Israelites at the time, they attack, come with their soldiers, 135,000 soldiers, and Gideon, he has a force, an army of 32,000 men. Now, I'm not very good in math, but I did a little math, and that's about a four-to-one advantage for the bad guys. 32,000, 135,000. God didn't like those odds. Anybody else like those odds? But here's the kicker. God didn't like those odds because he told Gideon to do something. He said... All your guys that are afraid to fight, go home. What military leader would say that? Here it is. Judges 7, chapter, verse 3. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. And they weren't even going to be considered AWOL. Just turn around and go. 22,000 took off like scared rabbits, and I I really don't blame them, leaving Gideon with only 10,000. Hey, God, what you doing here? Now the odds go from 4 to 1 to 13 to 1 for the bad guys, 10,000 versus 135,000. Now evidently, God still felt those odds were lopsided in Gideon's favor, not the Midianites' favor. So he instructed Gideon to dismiss all the soldiers who didn't drink water like a dog. Now, how many of you are dog owners? How many of you are dog owners? Now, when you go home today, watch how your dog drinks the water. Observe, okay? You'll learn something. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneeled down to drink 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouth all the rest got down on their knees to drink now I can't get down on my knees to show you this okay cuz I wouldn't be able to get back up but I think the 300 did something like this they took the water and they were looking around to see where the enemy was while they drank the others just kind of dove in Oblivious to the fact that they were in the midst of enemy territory. So those 300 were chosen out of the original 32,000. 31,700 are gone. The odds are now 450 to 1 for the bad guys. It's getting worse, God. We don't like your math. Finally, God thought the numbers were just right. So he told Gideon to attack the Midianites. Gideon divided his men into three groups, 100, 100, 100, for a nighttime assault. He said, I want you to wait till around midnight. That's probably about the changing of the guard, and then you're going to attack. You're going to have trumpets in one hand. You're going to have a clay jar in another hand, and inside that clay jar is a little candle, a little light. And you're going to blow the trumpet, you're going to break the jar, put up the light, and you're going to shout out. Here are the instructions. The three companies, a hundred each, blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands, holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, read it with me, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The Midianites were confused. They saw these lights and the noise and all that. 135,000 of them. The Bible says they actually began killing each other. They were so crazed and so out of it. Which led to a total victory by Gideon and his 300 men. 300 defeated 135,000. And I'm not a history major, but I doubt if there's been any battle that you had those kind of odds and the underdog won a decisive victory. Now, why am I saying all this? Who do you think got the credit for the victory? Was it Gideon and his brilliant strategizing? Was it the 300 men who lapped water like a dog? Who got the credit when the battle was over? Who would you have given the credit to? Who? God got the credit. And that's what God had in mind all along. Because before the battle even began, we read this. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. 32,000, that's too many. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me they saved themselves by their own strength. Man, you should have seen us run those guys off. Man, we were just getting it on. (laughs) You know, it seems like human nature is such that God has to sometimes cut us down to size. So that when the battle is over, he alone gets all the credit. And all the glory. When God wants to win a victory, He chooses losers and nobodies. Or as Casting Crowns put it in that great song that the band played so, so wonderfully, you know, God's looking for nobodies who will tell everybody all about somebody who saved their souls. God put the message of salvation in earthen vessels, jars of clay on purpose. He does it so when the great things happen, the people who know us, those who know all our mistakes and flaws, they'll come to only one possible conclusion. God did it. Couldn't be David. It couldn't be Rosemary. You know, David's not that smart, and and Rosemary's not that strong can't be them. The victory's got to be from God. God wants the world to see what he can do through people who trust in him alone to save them, and then after saving them, to work through them to accomplish his purposes in their lives. And that's why he puts the treasure of the message of salvation in fragile jars of clay. He delights in those people. He delights in a guy like me, a nobody. He delights in some people like you, nobodies. And that brings me back to the quote from Bill Gates that I originally had. Bill Gates said, success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can't lose. That's why God prefers losers. God prefers nobodies. So called winners, so called winners, think they don't need God. They think they can figure it all out. They've got all the answers. They can come up with every answer for every life's hurt or heartache or problem. They think they're smart. And they're strong. And they don't need God. They're the winners in life. They don't need God. But in fact, when we see how little we bring to the table, that's when we cry out, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those little simple words of humility, spoken in honesty, receive an answer from heaven because those Words touch the heart of God. And that's all we are, friends. We're clay pots. We're jars of clay, easily broken. We're fragile. But God delights to place the gospel treasure of salvation in people like you and people like me. An old preacher once said, there have always been men and women so clever that God could make no use of them. And I thought, how about us here at Faith Fellowship? Are we too clever for our own good? Are we so self-sufficient that we have no need of God? And consequently, he makes no use of us. Was the old preacher right? Does it rub you the wrong way for me to stand up here and say that you're to consider yourself a nobody for Jesus? You know, if anything about this message, I struggle with that aspect right there, that some of you when I said that, being a loser and a nobody for Jesus would rankle your feathers. God said, say it anyway. God uses broken, fallible, and weak people. Because in reality, that's who he loves to work with. Do you ever sense your own weakness? And in sensing your weakness and your smallness and your fragility, do you cry out for Jesus for help? If so, be glad. Take heart. Join with the rest of God's jars of clay his nobodies, and see what he can do through you. Amen? Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. We'll have prayer teams. They're going to ask you, and if you're not a Cincinnati Mingle fan or a Pittsburgh Steeler fan or a Pirate fan, you can still come up for prayer, okay? But we definitely want you to come up, because you really need prayer. And then I'm going to ask you to stand after the prayer and, and sing along with the band The song that they sang before I came out to speak. Lord God, I know that I'm a nobody for Jesus. Lord, and I don't care. I don't care if the world considers me and counts me as a nobody and as a loser for Jesus. Because, Lord, you lost your life for me. You laid down your life for me on the cross. And you made it possible for me to be forgiven of my sins. You made it possible for me to know in my heart that I will live eternally with you. You actually are preparing a place for those of us who love you right now, Lord. You're going to make it so wonderful, so grand. I pray that not a person in this room will miss that. They'll receive the cure that you have for the unbelievers, those whose spiritual hearts are blinded from the truth of God's message of salvation. That they'll say, Jesus, open up my life to the light. Open up my heart to the light. And Lord, as we pray that humble, simple prayer, you'll begin to do the work in us. We thank you, Jesus, for your love, and your mercy and grace in our lives. Help us to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.